I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if this is your first time hearing our show, good news. It's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped us become who we are today. And every educator we have on this podcast, whether it's a teacher, a coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show with us, so please do tell us about the educators who inspired you and the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu, whether you had them years ago or yesterday. This week, we are chatting with Michelle Roberts. She teaches deaf and hard of hearing students at the Community High School District 155 in Crystal Lake, Illinois. She's also an adaptive physical education teacher, helping make games and sports accessible for students with disabilities. For example, she modified a student's wheelchair so they could more easily play soccer with their friends. I took um, PVC pipe and kind of just looked at his wheelchair and figure out how I could attach it to it and then kind of made a little bit of a, it looks like a plow almost so that he was able to move his wheelchair forward and propel the ball with it like it just kind of go and he can get enough momentum with his wheelchair to be able to actually like in a sense kick the ball move it pass it to a friend or make a goal. We're talking special education teaching and coaching and so much more on this episode of Teacher's Lounge. But first, we've got a few more education stories we want to share. Thousands of Illinois community college students spend their time and their money on classes that don't earn them any college credit. They're called developmental education classes. And the state passed a law to reform DevEd back in 2021, and I got to check in on what the reforms look like so far. Kishwaukee College English instructor Carl First is finishing up a quick lesson. There are only eight students in the class, so he spends most of the time roaming around the room, helping them individually with their essays. This is a developmental English class. These students didn't place into the college-level course because of their high school GPA or test scores. And before the Developmental Education Reform Act, many of them would pay for a full semester class earning zero credit to work their way into a college-level course. Judson Curry is the dean in the Office of Instruction at Kishwaukee. Even if they persevere through those classes, you know, that's added time and expense, and so you lose students along the way. But how big of a problem is it? Well, in Illinois, just one in five community college students placed in developmental classes end up graduating. And even though the number is going down, a lot of Illinois students are still placed in developmental classes. For years, 40% of high school grads entering community colleges took at least one remedial class. That fell to 27% last year because colleges were forced to reform both how students are placed into classes and the classes themselves. That's why Mr. First Class at Kishwaukee is a co-requisite course. That means they're placed into the regular credit-bearing English 101 class like any other student, but they also get extra layers of support. At Kish, developmental students stay an hour after the regular class to get additional help, which is what's happening right now. And then I'm going to give you some practice with it right away. This is pretty new for a lot of community colleges across the state. Kishwaukee's offered a few co-requisite English classes, but this fall they have significantly scaled it up for English and math. 
And to do that effectively, the school worked with the Partnership for College Completion. They're a nonprofit focused on equity in higher education, and they also provide resources for colleges expanding co-requisite offerings. Lisa Castillo-Richmond is the executive director the Partnership for College Completion is working with over 20 colleges in Illinois. And even though it's still early in the reform process, some of the progress is clear. 59% of students in co-requisite courses passed a math gateway course in their first year, compared to 15% for the next model of reform and 13% in the traditional developmental education model. That's according to a report the Illinois Community College Board released earlier this year, and course completion percentages went up substantially for English classes, too. National data also points to more student success with this model. And Castillo-Richmond says it's also important to disaggregate the data by race. The data in the report shows that in 2021-22, 8% of black students passed the traditional developmental math course in their first year. In co-requisite classes, it went up to 50%. And with Hispanic students, it went from 13% to 59%. And there were similar jumps for English. But she stresses that there's still a long way to go. Almost all Illinois community colleges still use traditional developmental classes at least a little bit. There's also the issue of how students are placed into developmental classes. Before the Reform Act, colleges would most often rely on ACT scores or placement exams to decide if a student needed remedial courses. Now they're supposed to be using multiple measures, including those test scores, high school GPA, transitional courses, and more. But Castillo-Richmond says there's still a lot of variance on how placement works depending on the college. Maybe one third of them have adopted multiple measures as mandated by the DERA legislation. Back at Kishwaukee, first says it's still too early to say if co-requisite courses will lead to more success for his students. But he's optimistic, especially because of the one-on-one -on -one support he can offer. Unlike before, they're around students who are college ready and they see their behaviors and their approaches. And I can see the developmental students modeling those things, which is great. And he says that attendance has been noticeably higher than in the traditional developmental classes. But only time will tell if the extra support will actually help propel them to success. And new federal data shows that in the 2021-22 school year, there were nearly 200 school shootings with fatalities. That's the largest number ever. And I got to learn more about how in the new school year, many districts are investing in new school safety training and technology. Mine's on here super tight. I mean, I guess it's not supposed to be. Jimenez Sanchez wraps a combat application tourniquet around her arm. She secures the Velcro band and twists the windlass as tight as she can to stop life-threatening bleeding. Sanchez is a fifth grade teacher, only weeks into her first year at the Kankakee School District. But she's not in an emergency. She and a group of other teachers are taking a Stop the Bleed course. It's a program that started back in 2015 to be essentially CPR training for bleeding. And as the rate of mass shootings and school shootings continue to rise, more and more schools like Kankakee are training their teachers how to stop the bleed. Dana Arsenault is a trauma coordinator at Riverside Medical Center in Kankakee, and she's one of the nurses leading the training. So we teach tourniquet care, and we teach how to put pressure and how to find bleeding, what life-threatening bleeding is, what non-life-threatening bleeding is, and basically we teach them how to stop it. She says the number one cause of preventable death in trauma is bleeding because it only takes two minutes. 
And Arsenal says two ways to identify life-threatening bleeding are if it has a pulse or if it's pooling. The teachers take turns applying the military-grade tourniquets on each other and themselves. Arsenal coaches them through school shooting scenarios and uses a fake leg to show how to properly stuff gauze into a wound. If you're not safe, you can't help others. No gauze in the classroom? Grab a shirt or a flag off the wall if you need to apply pressure to a wound. School lanyards? Make great makeshift tourniquets. And the educators see that the combat tourniquets only cost about $20 on Amazon if they want to get some for their classroom go-bags. And since they're teachers, the trauma nurse talks about how to use these techniques when you're saving small children from bullet or knife wounds. So a lot of times you don't even have to put a tourniquet on them. You can just put pressure. They are not going to be sitting there nice and calm, right? So we have to distract the Jesus out of them. This is another good job for all of those little helpers in the room who want to help out, get somebody in their face, and you need to hide, hide whatever is going on. So if you place a tourniquet on, you're going to cover it up so that they can't see it. Sanchez knows it's necessary and thought the training was helpful, but it's still really sad. She's just a few weeks into her teaching career, and it's already something her 10-year-old fifth grade students bring up to her. Literally, like, when my kids first came into my classroom, they're like, oh, there's a closet in there. Like, so if someone came and shot the school, like, we'll all go inside the closet. And it's like, it was just really sad. Like, I'm glad that they're thinking about their safety, but I just was kind of like, that I, they didn't have to. At Rockford Public Schools, they're investing heavily into school safety technology. The district is spending $2.5 million on new Evolve weapons detection systems. They're not metal detectors. It uses AI and sensors to identify if a person likely has a weapon. Jason Barthel is the chief information officer for Rockford Public Schools, and he says they've installed the systems at every high school starting this fall, and that students walk through the doors as usual with a few staff members monitoring the system in case of an alert. I have a tablet in front of me and it'll put like a red box around where that alert was. I can pull that student aside, continue letting everybody else walk through. He says the system was developed for arenas, stadiums, and amusement parks, but over the past few years, hundreds of school districts like Rockford have installed them. We send about 8,000, a little over 8,000 kids through this thing on a daily basis in about 25 minutes. Um, and we're seeing, uh, we started off uh, about 8 to 11 percent alert rate, alarm rate. That means around 10 percent of students are pulled off to the side to be searched after setting off the alarm. But it's not weapons that are setting it off. It's eyeglass cases, Chromebooks, among other everyday objects. Barthel says they've yet to have a real weapon identified with the system, and he says he expects the false alarm rate to go down. A 2022 BBC report questioned if Evolve systems are as effective as they claim, but Barthel says that's not a concern. And Barthel says the district paid for the Evolve system with funds already allocated to their technology budget. We've heard from parents and the community through surveys that people are concerned about safety and security in the building. So let's give this, let's add this to our tool set and we can do it without costing, essentially without costing the taxpayer another dollar. Mass shooting fears aren't going away. And since schools can't pass legislation, all they can do is apply a tourniquet or build up defenses to make students, staff, and families feel more protected when they walk into class or drop their kids off. All right, now it's time for our conversation with hearing itinerant and adapted PE teacher Michelle Roberts. And we start off talking about Michelle's coaching. She coaches a little bit of everything. That's an interesting uh, combination, though, golf and cross-country. Are those very different to coach, or do they have more in common than people might think? No, they are very different. And I actually, I was a runner um, in middle school, high school, mm -hmm. 
and so I never, because cross country and golf are on the, in the same season, yeah. never did golf in high school, which I really should have. And I didn't really pick it up until college. And I, I don't know, I guess I just have a natural, I have a natural swing. So um, <laughs> my grandpa always was taking lessons when we were kids. Um, and I didn't really think anything of it. And then once I got to college, I was like, wow, this is something fun, something I'm really decent at. And I worked at a golf course. So that helped also. Yeah, that helps, so yeah. I, yeah. And so then I think it was maybe right before COVID actually, I got my, um, uh, I am a USA golf adapted golf instructor. So I have my certificate for that. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring my love for golf into special ed and then they had, um, it's just, it was a, a, a workshop that I can do, um, for a weekend and I went down and did it and I was like, this is awesome to see how like everybody really can play golf. Yeah. What do those adaptations look like when, for golf? It, it really could be anything. Yeah. Um, so we have like, if you would do it in the schools that you'd obviously have like plastic clubs with larger golf balls or actually was, they look more like tennis balls. Yeah. Um, and, um, but they have, um, all sorts of different grips. Like, so our extra instructor for this workshop, um, he only has, has one arm. And so he has a, like a grip that he has that actually like Velcros the club to his hand so that when he uses that one hand, he can have a full swing with all the power that he has to be able to do that. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. They have, they showed us, they have like a cart that for people with, um, restrictions, lower restrictions, mm-hmm that actually props them up that they're able to take a full swing um in this cart it was it was it's pretty phenomenal what what technology has allowed us to to do yeah i'm fascinated by adaptive pe this that we actually about a year and a half ago had another adaptive pe teacher on the show and i just think it's such an interesting mix of like both technology in terms of like what equipment we have at our disposal but also creativity and like ingenuity Mm -hmm. of trying to find someone that that works something that works for whatever student I, i know that the the person that nominated you talked about uh how you were able to kind of modify a wheelchair for a student that wanted to play soccer, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I um, I took um, PVC pipe and kind of just looked at his wheelchair and figure out how I could attach it to it, and then kind of made a little bit of a I don't I don't know what to call it like it looks like a plow almost, um, so that he was able to move his wheelchair forward and propel the ball with it, like it just kind of go, and he can get enough momentum with. Um, his wheelchair to be able to actually like in a sense kick the ball move it pass it to a friend or make a make a goal Um, so that was really it's just kind of just looking at at Pinterest and Google that kind of stuff. I was gonna say you kind of have to like marry like your love of special education with like engineering at some point to figure this stuff Mm -hmm. out yeah actually my last um I just, my second master's degree that I got was in educational leader, uh, educational technology. And so like, I just love technology and like, whether it's a computer based technology or it's just technology that you would like old school technology, it's, you can kind of, you have all that at your disposal to, to be able to adapt things to make everything accessible for these kids. And it's, that's, that's really my like passion is being able to figure out different things to make things accessible. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And it's yeah, the technology has to be 
such a, a, a cool thing too. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, I, again, I have to imagine that some of the stuff would be maybe a little bit more difficult and you maybe didn't have a Pinterest that you could go up to, to look to, or you were really just like on your own trying to tape stuff together, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And even technology with, for my students that with hearing loss, like it's crazy how the, the new apps that they have and the just different technologies that might not be geared for students that have hearing loss, but it's, you can take that and say, Hey, I'm going to try that with this. And they're like, Oh, wow. That's a really big game changer. And just the, the captioning options that they have now is just phenomenal. So, so you're an adaptive PE teacher, which I mentioned, we have had someone on the show already who has done that, but it was a long time ago. Now it was about a year and a half ago. Could, for folks that have no idea what you mean when you say adaptive PE, can you explain a little bit about like what the day to day really looks like for that? Sure. So, um, for me personally, I teach adaptive PE at Cary Grove High School, um, and the students that I see in adaptive PE are students typically from the functional communication program, so um, students that need a little bit more help with um, communication. So sometimes students have autism or maybe Down syndrome or maybe just have some speech um, uh, difficulties. And when they come to adaptive PE, it's that students that can't um, function in the regular PE setting because it's very noisy. There's a lot of students. They might be um, have some physical restrictions that they might not be able to participate. And so we try to take that class period and um, not only get them moving for the, that 45 minute class period, but also I'm trying to give them functional skills that they'll be able to use beyond high school to be able to stay active as adults um, within the community. So we're looking at um, what kind of things that they would do with their families. So they have backyard games. So if they're having a barbecue or they're playing, they have like a volleyball thing set up in the backyard. If they know how to, to, to serve, how to set, that kind of thing. Um, really, what's really cool um, that we just started last year is we have heart rate monitors for the students so that they wear the heart rate monitor on their wrist, um, like, a, like a Fitbit would show their heart rate. And they're able to participate in um, various activities and they can kind of figure out what activities they like to do, and then also raise their, raise, raise their heart rate so that they know, okay, I really like to uh, walk on the treadmill, or I really like to maybe go for a run, or I like to play basketball. And these things, those, those activities raise my heart rate. So then moving on, maybe at home, they're able to say, hey, I want to do some kind of um, activity. Um, and then I say, oh, I know I've done this, and I know that this is going to raise my heart rate. So they were able to do that on their own. That's fun. I know that it definitely depends on, on what the student is interested in, but is there a particular game, sport, anything that over the course of the year that you cover that like the kids get especially excited about or that you especially enjoy teaching and doing? So last year we started a Special Olympics basketball. We had a basketball team and we, we did they, they, we had enough students to have, have one team. It was awesome. We did really well. We'd have our practices during P, during adaptive PE, and then we'd have games on the weekends, and we um, actually qualified for state. Whoa, that's amazing. Um, through Special Olympics, yes, it was awesome. They had such a great time. So that kind of sparked the interest in basketball and got everyone going. And this past school year we had, um, we actually had enough students to have two teams. And so it was that every, every minute they had any, like, choose your activity, it was always, can we play basketball, can we play basketball? Because they just, they really have a love for it and a passion for it. And um, 
they're just they just keep talking about when when next season next season next season and it's it's really probably the highlight of of uh adaptive pd for them is basketball is it high school age or yes Mm-hmm. Now, see, I'm always curious with with like you know ba- like high schoolers in basketball. Has the Steph Curryification of basketball has it trickled down to these levels too? Is everyone just putting up threes, or do some people have some wicked post games? No, we definitely have to say that you're not allowed to shoot threes. That is something I do yell frequently from the <laughs> sidelines: no threes, no threes, because we have a lot of air balls when we try our threes. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. Pretty much all in game time. Do in practice they do shoot threes and they will make them so it, they think that they are they are ready for the NBA and want to shoot those threes during the game. But we we try to we we really encourage passing and getting uh, as close as we can to the basket to to attempt our shots. Fundamentally so. sound. That's right. We got to move the ball. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. We we don't want it to be a one person show. We definitely are a team. <laughs> We want to we want to give everybody the opportunity to score. So being involved with the Special Olympics as an organization, that's kind of what allows you to like join in competitions and stuff like that. Then, yes, yes, we um, we we have we, we reach out to um, some of the other schools that also have teams in the area, um, and we invite them to come to us, and then sometimes they'll invite us to come to their schools as well. And typically, it's hard with um, the right the right the basketball. Um, season being at the same time yeah. um, in gym space is hard. So typically our games are on um, Sundays, uh-huh. but it's, it's definitely, it's definitely rewarding to be able to go to other schools and, and, and visit other schools and other gyms and the fans come in and it's, it's definitely fun. Are there a lot of local schools that have those programs then? Um, I want to say there's a, probably a good five or six that we um, compete against. Yeah. And when we go to like the bigger, we went to regionals we find some other um schools and when they realize that we have a program because we're so new we're just this is just our second year yeah. uh, they will they've reached out to us to say hey come we'll come we'll come by you if you come by us kind of yeah, yeah yeah and you said you qualified for state this last year um it wasn't this last year it was the year, the year before. before it was our first year mm-hmm. wow year one i mean it's hard to start better than that Oh, I know. It was we had uh, pretty high uh, expectations for the next year. <laughs> what, what was the state tournament like? Was that another thing where you had to travel for that? Yes, it was definitely. It was at ISU, so it was Whoa. really it was really cool to go down there. It was a, a weekend long event. Um, it's definitely, Special Olympics does a great job with that. It's they go all out in the field house at ISU, and they have games going. Uh, I think there was like three or four games going on at the time. Um, definitely. Definitely something to attend and watch. It's really cool. So at this point, you're teaching tenure. I mean, you've got basketball, golf, cross country. <laughs> I think I saw track too somewhere on the list. Yeah. There, you've yeah, you've, a track coach. you've hit just about everything, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for the most part, we, we we have us. We do the kids do like the we play soccer in the fall. We haven't done it competitively outside of the school yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know that might be actually being talks of doing some stuff outside of Cary Grove because they definitely like they like soccer in the fall. So that's awesome. You know, we always ask people about like if they, you know, if being a teacher is something they've wanted to do since they were a kid, since since they were really young, or if it came to them later in life. I'm curious. Like, I, I imagine I take this that you know you grew up playing sports and everything. Yes, yes, I did. I was oh, I was a runner in middle school and high school. Distance or um, what, what? What distance? So I started out with distance just because that's what everyone does when they're at that yeah, age. Fair. Yeah. Um, 
And then as I matured, I realized I was faster than I thought I was. And so I was a sprinter um, later on in my high school career. But I can cut, I can, I have a, I have a good kick and I also have the endurance. So <laughs> it's best of both worlds then. Yeah. Yes, yes. I come by my whole family are all distance runners. So not a lot of sprinting going on in the house, but just like a lot of marathoners around here. Yeah, I've only I've only done one marathon. I, I, I'm good with just saying I've done one and that's See, it. and I've done two halves. So I like to say that adds up, right? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, my dad is a machine. My dad does like two a year. He's just turning 65. He's done like 40 plus marathons. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, it's, that's not for me. I just, I, I don't have the time, I feel like, yeah, no. <laughs> to train or even just on you checked it off the recovery the, time after one. You checked it off the list. You're, you're good to go, right? <laughs> yes, I can say I've done it. I've been there, done that. I'm okay. So after, you know, playing sports your whole life, like was coaching something that you always wanted to do or is it something that kind of just the opportunity arose and you took it? I think just because I've always wanted to be – a teacher like that kind of goes hand in hand like you're if you like sports and you're a teacher it kind of you have those opportunities yeah. to do that and yeah I was just very fortunate to have these opportunities here at 155 it's just it's great I, I really I really enjoy it and it's a it's a great way to connect with the kids on a different level like you have you can build that relationship outside of the classroom um and it just it makes that that relationship just that much better yeah so teaching is something that you've wanted to do since you were for a long time then. Yeah, I've come from a family of educators. My grandpa grandpa was a um, teacher, principal. Um, I think I have four aunts that were in education. My one aunt was um, in special ed. Um, I just, it's always been kind of in the family. I, so no, always something no, to do. nobody was surprised then when you made it be known that's what you wanted to do. No, actually, there was a surprise when I went into college. I thought I was going to be an accountant, and everyone's like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, and that made it until I think freshman orientation, I switched my major to education. <laughs> so, like, what is that, like three days? <laughs> well, it was like oh, I, right. I, yeah. I think I applied, I applied with my to get into school with an, as an accountant, and then I don't. I just decided – I don't know what I was thinking. It's a pivot. It's, it's a it's a pretty hard pivot from from accounting to education. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I had taken two accounting classes in high school, and I thought, oh yeah, this is what I want to do. And then, like, let's be real, that's probably not. I can't sit at a desk and by myself and work on numbers. I need to be with students and people, and and I just like, I just the being able to have an, like make an impact on somebody. And I had so many people in my life as teachers like make impacts on me, I wanted to be able to do that for somebody else. Yeah, that's something that we always ask people on, on the show about, considering like kind of the whole concept of the show is that everyone's had a teacher that, you know, inspired them or, or helped them become the person they are today. Like who are some of the people that, that stand out for you as you look back on that now? Um, I always say um, it was my fourth grade teacher. Um, she really made me want to be a teacher. Yeah. Um, and I suppose you got so many in the family too, right? Like it feels like yeah. we can't leave them out. Like I think growing up was a big thing was that we'd always go out with my grandpa. Like my grandpa would take us out like on the weekends. So we'd go like to the coffee shop or out for breakfast and in the community. And he would, people would always come up to him. Are you George Barrett? Are you? And it was like to see all the connections, like it would be 
30 years plus that he'd seen these people and they would still remember him and still come up with a story and like come and want to say hi to him. And that was always like, wow, I want to be, I want to have that effect on somebody that 30 years down the road, they're going to come back and say, wow, you were a high, like an inspiration in my life. You made me want to do this. And I just think that was the coolest thing. And that's kind of what steered me towards education. And then you said fourth grade teacher too. Yeah. So my fourth grade teacher, um, her name at that time was Miss Cannon. Um, she, I actually kept in touch with her and she, I think the last maybe five or six years ago, she um, passed away, unfortunately. Um, but she was just always like had those activities that keep you engaged and keep you excited. And like, I never at that point liked reading and she would get us hooked on like different activities to be want to read the rest of the book to figure out what was going to happen. and. I just remember like book reports that we had to do that weren't really like, they didn't feel like book reports. And I was like, wow, if, that, if this can be fun, like as in the classroom, like what could I do in the classroom kind of thing? It was just always just an inspiration to me. Yeah. I, I wonder, is that something that you thought about? Like, especially like as you were first getting into your first like teaching jobs of being like, I wonder how, I wonder how she would have done this. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, like there's, just like little, like I, I still remember this day, like we had on the board, it was like, she spelled out popcorn. We had each letter and it was like our reward. Like every, like if we did something, like some, did something good, we followed expectations or whatever it was, she put up a letter. And once we spelled out the word popcorn, then we got a popcorn party. And it was just, it was so simple that all she did was pop popcorn on her lunch break and brought it in. And like, yeah, but back then we thought it was the greatest thing in the world, but it was just something super easy. She pop like three, four bags of popcorn and then we would still do our work. We just got to eat popcorn while we did it. Sometimes that's what it takes. That's that's so funny to think about though. Like I get you're you're totally right that like when you were in fourth grade, that's like magic though. Like you unlock something like a popcorn or pizza party and then you like peek behind the curtain and it's just like her in the teacher's lounge just throwing bags in the microwave, you know? It's so For funny. Sure. Yeah, and you just as a like as a teacher, I know what it like and for us to get just and get engaged in that, like entire class bought into it like i remember one day we were like totally being brown nosers and we um they it was she was coming and we had inside recess and when she was walking down the hallway we all got in our desks all got quiet and as soon as she opened the door we said hi miss cannon and then when she came in and she was like oh my gosh that's amazing that you guys are all sitting on quiet and then she we got a letter and so like we did it for like a week straight just to earn our to our earn our popcorn and like, obviously that was like, for her, it was like, oh, they're already transitioned in their desks, ready to go. And like, we were like, oh my gosh, we're just gonna do pop, like to get our popcorn. That's all we could think about. So. It's such like effort things, right? Where it's, it's such a small thing, but it really can, you know, like that you could captivate an entire room of fourth graders just with the prospect of something small like that. Right, right, right. And like thinking now as a teacher, that's genius. Like they were in the seat, we were in our seats, ready to go. like. It's hard to transition from inside recess where you're at, at your desks goofing around or whatever to, okay, that's time to work. And we had done it for her. <laughs> you got to, have you stolen the idea? Have you popped much popcorn in, in your day yet? <laughs> I, ha I have not. I don't really have a classroom. That's that fair. I, that's I, very true. I, I haven't, I haven't had the chance to do that, but that's definitely would be on my list of things to do. <laughs> so you mentioned that like, not only do you have teachers in your family, but some teachers in your family who taught special education too, right? Yes. Yeah, so my aunt um, is an early interventionist. Um, so she's little kids. And then my other aunt, um, she worked for 
um, the special, one of the special ed co-ops in, I think it was like maybe Waukegan. And I know she would bring us to um, like basketball tournaments or have us keep score for tournaments and like activities that they had going on there. So we were always around other people. Um, as, as kids, we were always around um, just people being teachers. But I remember we'd, have, we'd go into like classrooms and stuff with my grandpa and like pretend we were teachers, that kind of thing, so. Classic, oh yeah, listen, we've had our fair share of those stories of teaching stuffed animals, all sorts of stuff. Yes, <laughs> for sure, for sure. So what about you becoming a special education teacher? Was that something that came later on in your kind of education in college? Like how did you get to that point where, you know, not only were you going to be a teacher, but you were gonna teach special education and, you know, hearing impaired students, deaf students, all that stuff? So actually I went, originally went to school to be a math teacher. I was kind of my, I went from accounting hey, to edu you can, education. You still got oh, that, that accounting piece. Okay, yeah, so it wasn't totally disconnected. All right, yeah. so I had the so I had the math portion. I, I, ha, I do have my uh, endorsement in math if I wanted to teach math, but I, I don't at this point. Um, just because I had taken enough math classes in the math education program. Um, but my first year, I had, first year at Northern, I had saw a sign that they were having a sign language club. And I thought that, that would be cool. My aunt had actually taught her um, her twins, um, how to sign before they could talk. And I thought that was the most interesting thing because I was at that time, maybe like seventh or eighth grade. And I'm like, this is crazy that these kids can, these babies are able to communicate with just sign language. They can't talk yet. And I'm like, I want to learn. I only knew the basics, like more finished, eat, that kind of thing. So I'm like, this would be cool to learn. And so I went to the sign language club class or whatever they were hosting. And it was on at NIU, actually, the, um, they had a floor of students who were deaf and hard of hearing that were coming to Northern to as a transition program. And they were just teaching students that wanted to learn sign language. And I just thought it was the most amazing like atmosphere and community. And I think after maybe three or four times of going to um, this club that I switched my major to deaf education and said, this is what I want to do. I want to work with students that are like these guys that I am working with right now. And I think that it's just amazing. Sign language is such an amazing language and the culture of the deaf culture is just so unique and it kind of sparked it from there. What is it that you think is like that really connected with you about it, that culture being so unique? I don't know. I just feel like that all of these kids, they, especially with students that don't have a lot of, like my students, I have, I think this year, maybe 32 students across four high schools yeah. and they don't really know each other that they exist. Like they are, they come into the high school and they don't know each other. They like, Deafness is kind of an invisible disability unless you have speech um, difficulties, it's really hard to tell that you have a hearing loss. Um, and so these students sometimes never have met another person with a hearing loss and the only person they actually sign with may be an interpreter for their entire, like, their entire education career once until they get to college. And that these were students who had, a lot of these students had done that, they had not been with anybody before and they were able to come together and like their common ground was sign language and 
to see them like just all of a sudden they, like a family and they had only met each other and known each other for like a short period of time and they have all of these like commonalities of being the only ones and I wanted to be able to help those kids like find somebody else and and have somebody that's not necessarily have a hearing loss and to create that community within their like I wanted to take it back to like whatever school district I was in and and build a community that they wouldn't feel excluded in and have that inclusivity of just everything in general and being able to um not be the only one and not have the only one not only only person that they can talk to as an interpreter i just feel like that does a disservice to our students yeah that makes total sense and like what you said about it being kind of invisible i know there's a very famous quote about you know uh blindness separating people from places and and deafness or lack of hearing separating people from people and i know that like within you know special education that like a big part of your work is that kind of self-advocacy and of helping those kids kind of advocate for themselves and also you know you also advocating for them too right and that's uh, advocate self-advocacy is huge that's a major portion of what i do with my students and it's funny because I always say to these incoming freshmen saying like I know that you have just gotten to high school and it's like you've had a great team as in the elementary school that does all like the behind the scene advocating for you but now it's time for you to build those self-advocacy skills on your own and we're kind of looking past high school and to see like what kind of goals you need and what kind of things that you'll tools that you will need past high school and then we take the time that four years you're in high school to practice all of those and so my students are able to practice for those goals and for those for whatever their path may be post high school and they can use this time in the the safe space of high school to practice and 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 utilize all these tools that they can that they can have yeah i think it's so fascinating the idea of like building the like community within your school too or within your school community because like that, that's that's so interesting to think about how like a lot of times those students are like one of the only people in their school or in their district that have hearing loss, and that the only person they communicate with in sign language is you know their interpreter or the teacher that they have, you know like that's such a that totally makes sense just in terms of like a language learning perspective of just being able to talk with a teacher versus, you know, talking to all different kinds of people about all different topics, right? Like it's such a specific perspective to only have it be student teacher versus all the other situations where you're just having conversations off the cuff, you know? Right. And even just like learning different, there's having those experiences where you're learning from another student or you're, you can only do so much as a teacher as especially at the high school age of direct instruction saying this is what you should try this is what you should try where i try to get my students to talk to each other so like we use a lot of the um the tools that we use during covid like uh, a lot of the different resources that we can use um virtually so they can communicate with each other and kind of brainstorm with each other and share like okay this is a situation it's a common situation that occurs what kind of solutions can we come up with what have you tried to to get over this difficult listening situation and then have them share those with each other rather than me saying this is what works this is what you should try they can learn from each other um and that way they're collaborating amongst each other they might not have met in person 
face to face, but they still have via these tools able to collaborate um, virtually. Yeah. Hopefully, I guess that's hopefully a silver lining from the pandemic learning experience for them is at least they have more like digital spaces to connect with each other or, or more tools that they're aware of that could help. Right. It, it helps me too, because we've, everyone had to try this and I was before COVID, I was trying to get them to communicate virtually and it was harder because nobody knew how to use it. So it was a lot of like taking a lot of the time to teach them how to use the tools. And then once everyone had to do it, it was much easier on my end to say, okay, let's try Flipgrid. Okay, we're gonna all do a Flipgrid video together and um, post about X, Y, and Z, and then we have to comment on it and that kind of thing. And so it was able, like people are able to see each other. They're able to put a face to the name that they might've seen on a discussion post or that kind of thing. And it's just a little bit more interactive. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and you're uh, hearing itinerant, which means that you have you said like 30 plus students usually that you across mm -hmm. four schools then? Yes. So you're depending on the day traveling between different schools, then you also have the adaptive PE portion too. Like what does a kind of week in, in your life look like? I'm sure it, <laughs> it varies quite a bit. It does vary quite a bit. I try to, um, so I have three different components to, to building my schedule. First I have the adaptive PE, which is a set time every week every day of the week. So I have, that kind of goes in first. And then I have to look at um, when my students that are in general education, when they have an access period or a study hall, um, cause I don't want to pull them out of academics. And so then I have to figure out at each building, okay, who has study hall this time, who has study hall this time to kind of build that in there. And then I also have students that are in um, the self-contained classrooms and the self-contained programs at each building. And so then I have to figure out, okay, when do I need to see those students? Um, also like some of the students I work with, um, I work with other related service staff with those students. So I have to kind of look at their schedules and see what days we have in common that are available. So right now I haven't even looked at schedules yet. That's kind of the first week of school because they it all changes the students see their schedules for the first time and then they're like oh i don't like this class i want to change and so their schedules change the first week um so i get a, a basis down of my first week but it always like, there's without like without a doubt it'll change the first the second week by the second week of school it'll be different than what it should be yeah and but it, it's i try to try to limit the amount of driving that i need to do so i try to try to block this so i try to get as many as i can and I'm at South on Mondays or then Tuesdays I'll try to get to Central. So I try to I try to restrict my driving so it's I'm all at one building for the most of the part. But it doesn't ever happen. There's days that I I'm in all four buildings, sometimes twice in one of the buildings, just depending on maybe a student has a hearing aid that's broken or there's a meeting I have to attend at this building. So it it, it could change. There are days <laughs> where you hit school bingo and you just nail all of them in one day <laughs> exactly exactly and so when you're meeting with those students you know what are some of the more common things that you're helping with is it i know that it can be technology based like you said like if someone has an issue with a hearing aid that broke i know that a lot of it is you know talking with teachers about accessibility making sure their lesson is able to you know be able to include them and stuff like what are the kind of again I know this could be all sorts of variety. They come to you with all different kinds of things, but what are the more common things that you typically are, are able to connect and, and help them with? So it, it really 
all depends. So I have um, a curriculum that I've created. So over the course of four years that they're with me at high school, um, we look at different things. So um, essentially when they're in middle school and in elementary school, they have some, the hearing itinerant works behind the scenes, kind of does all that stuff on their own. Whereas when they come to me, they, it, they're going to have to be able to explain their hearing loss. They're going to have to um, understand limitations. They have to understand like how sound works so that they can get to a classroom and understand, okay, there's a fan over here. This is going to be, I should be, have the fan on my, like behind me, or I need to, like, there's a reflection. I can't read the, um, the teacher's lips. Like, so I need to be seated over here. So they need to like learn all those different things so that they can get into their environment and, and be able to adjust it that way. So it's a lot of, um, teaching them the, like the almost like general hearing loss knowledge. And then we work on it. Okay. We have this general hearing loss knowledge. Okay. Let's look at your hearing loss and how does that impact you? And so we're building this toolbox essentially of all these different resources, the different tools that they're going to need for their individual hearing loss that they can carry through the rest of high school and then on into college if that's their choice or the workforce. So you developed this like four year course that kind of builds on itself over the course of, of their high school? Yes. Yeah. So I kind of took bits and pieces from different uh, resources that um, we have. There's not really a curriculum for um, hearing itinerants in a sense, yeah. um, but there are different skills that these that students need. And so I've taken activities that I've created for this and I created like a pretest and a post test. Okay, this is what you should know by the time you finish high school. These are the skills you need to have to move on. And so then I created, I, then I broke it down into different sections and created activities for each, for them to be able to um, practice different things for them to be able to just maybe information. Um, I do a technology trial um, every single year. They have to pick a new technology tool, whether it's a different microphone that they're used to for um, their FM system, or it's a captioning tool or it could be a um, maybe a alarm device for like a alarm clock at home, different types of things that they need to, um, they might, even if they might not need it at this time, at least they have the, the knowledge about it. And then I have to create a little bit of like a propaganda for it. So like um, a commercial, whether it was a good commercial, like it's something they really want or something maybe they don't need um, and kind of do like a little advertisement for it so that somebody and then they post it so they can all see it and so that oh i remember that so and so did the captioning tool on this and I, maybe i want to try that or that kind of thing so that they can try different things but then also learn from each other there's probably a lot of different technology and tools that you have to be familiar with oh yes and then, and they definitely they change every year too like which is good but then it's also like i have to keep up with it also but they just come out with new like the microphone systems that they students come out with uh, are with the that the companies come out with that the students can use that they give. Um, originally when they first started it was just a directional mic that the teacher wore. Now they have the microphones that you can like set on the table and you can pick up the group around you, um, which more featured for educational. And then you have like a little disc that you can put down and has microphones all around and you can select which microphones you want. So if you're in a group of a, a group of a table, you can select who you want to listen to and who is kind of turned off. So it's, it's, it's awesome for these kids to be able to have that. Um, 
but again, it, sometimes students don't necessarily want to use them. So it's great for like to have those kind of students who who found success with it and are super passionate about having it. And it's great for them to like make these little videos to say, wow, this is really great. This is what how it how it worked for me and be able to share that with their friends. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that's the stereotype or the idea that most people have for, you know, again, for, for deaf students or for hard of hearing students is just hearing aid. That's all they can think of for technology, but there's a lot. Right. And, and hearing aid, what most people don't understand and they, they think it's kind of like glasses where you put glasses on and it, it's great. You can go keep, you can see, um, hearing aids amplify everything. So it's not only amplifying the person talking to you, but it's amplifying all the background noise. So the fan going, the people talking next to you, the lawnmower outside or the street car, like the cars on the street, it amplifies all that thing. And your brain has to then decipher what is the most important signal that they want to hear. And sometimes that signal is not very clear. If you have a student that, that uh, mumbles or you, that it's not going to be super easy or even having a, like a student has an accent or a teacher has an accent, that's going to be more difficult also for somebody to be able to decipher. What's something about specifically being a special education teacher or teaching students with disabilities that you just wish more people knew about? For the most part, I feel like we are just like regular education teachers. Like we want what's best for our students. Um, and it might look sometimes way different and like disorganized. And sometimes you come into the, into the gym and it doesn't look, it looks like chaos, but it is organized chaos. And you got the accounting background. Everything's organized. Right. It's organized. Like I like to have a plan and have things and you have to, when you are a special ed teacher, like you, especially for PE, you have 20 students in there. We have peer buddies. Sometimes we could have at least 30 to 40 bodies in the, in the, in one, one school. And so it is, it has to be organized. It does look like chaos, but it is definitely organized, but it just, I think sometimes when we're in a building, it could be like two entities, gen ed teachers and special ed teachers. We're just like everyone else. And we just want what's best for our students. Yeah. And then what's just something about education in general, you wish more people knew about or, or think is more important than people might realize. It's harder than you think. <laughs> all right, Michelle. Well, hey, thanks so much again for taking the time out of your Thursday afternoon to, to chat about all this. I really appreciate having you on. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests like Michelle. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do consider subscribing, leaving a rating, or sharing it with your friends. Whatever you can do, it helps us get even more perspectives, even more educators on the show. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the music you hear throughout each and every episode of this show. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with a brand new Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.